The door refused to open. It said, Five cents, please. He searched his pockets. No more coins. Nothing. I'll pay you tomorrow. He told the door. Again, he tried the knob. Again, it remained locked tight. What I pay you, he informed it, is the nature of a gratuity. I don't have to pay you. I think otherwise, the door said. Look into the purchase contract you signed when you bought this con up. In his desk drawer, he found the contract. Since signing it, he had found it necessary to refer to the document many times. Sure enough, payment to his door for opening and shutting constituted a mandatory fee, not a tip. You'll discover I'm right, the door said. It sounded smug. From the drawer beside the sink, Joe Chip got a stainless steel knife. With it, he began systematically to unscrew the bolt assembly of his money-gulping door. The door said as the first screw fell out. Joe Chip said, I've never been sued by a door. I guess I can live through it. This machine kills. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 48 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jason, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So uh, when we started TMK, it was always low-key just an excuse to have conversations with really interesting and smart people whose work we've long admired and been following. And today is absolutely no exception to that, as we're joined by extremely prolific author and longtime activist, Corey Doctorow. Corey, th- thanks for coming on TMK. It's a dream come true. Uh, I listen to your podcasts and think that's right on. And oh my God, I really want to argue with them about that. And I um, am living with some very bright people who have no interest in hearing me talk about this stuff anymore. So uh, you're saving my sanity. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy to hear that and, and definitely looking forward to having a conversation and, uh, and perhaps an argument with you about a few <laughs> things, Corey. <laughs> now, you're in, now you're in the danger room. <laughs> I'm here to explain to you why uh, Luddites weren't against frames. <laughs> didn't want like the project of Luddism was not to eliminate stocking frames any more than the project of Al-Qaeda was to end civilian aviation. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Oh no, we're our first guest who's going to Luddite explain us about Luddism. <laughs> I'm not going to Luddite shame you. Shame. <laughs> so when we were talking about, I mean, there's so many things that we can that we can discuss, but as a way to kind of guide our conversation, at least at the beginning before we follow all the interesting tangents, when we were talking about you coming on, um, one of the things that you brought up that you really wanted to talk about was this concept that you've been working on for quite a while called adversarial interoperability. And I feel like this links in a lot to um, so many things that we talk about on TMK. I mean, going back to our whole episode about like uh, the power of standards, going back to, you know, all the things that we constantly talk about, about the like consolidation of platforms, about this kind of what what I call extraction as a service, this kind of like rampant rentier capitalism um, that's being embedded in all of our smart toothbrushes and homes and cities and everything. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And so maybe just by way of like, giving us a foundation here. Cause I was 
I, I mean, I have to admit, I was kind of, I was pretty unfamiliar with this term adversarial interoperability until you sent us a bunch of really great stuff to read. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, th this is really interesting. And I feel like it is something that people should know about, should have in their kind of conceptual toolbox. So can you just explain to us what is adversarial interoperability and what, what makes it different than all the other ways that like my Bluetooth headphones can connect to my phone and my computer and my speakers? Yeah, so I'll start by, with some nomenclature. We started off calling it adversarial interoperability at Electronic Frontier Foundation, but it is a, a cruel thing to inflict on our German speaking European director. Uh, listening to a German say adversarial interoperability is like listening to a German say squirrel. It's, uh, it's comedic, <laughs> but also reminds you that like English speakers have trouble with words like uh, fingerspitzengefühl, and so that cuts both ways. So now yeah. we call it com competitive compatibility, because it's also, mm. you can abbreviate it to comcom, -com, which is like fun to say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the, if you think about interoperability, there's kind of three kinds of interoperability. There's the accidental stuff where it's like, oh, hey, I've just noticed that every car has a standard electrical receptacle for a cigarette lighter. I know how to make a thing that can transform that electrical current into a USB charger. Uh, the person who made that doesn't care. They didn't have my application in mind, but I can just go ahead and do it, right? So that's like the, the accidental stuff. A lot of like, uh, if you look at like old Rube Goldberg cartoons, it's like full of like people attaching blenders to, you know, hair dryers and doing a thing. That's, mm -hmm. that's accidental or, you know, inadvertent or, you know, um, couldn't care less interoperability, indifferent mm. interoperability. Then there's cooperative interoperability. It's standardization. So like that actual electrical receptacle that powers your cigarette lighter in your car, someone actually did sit down and standardize that. There was an inter-industry body that convened. They had a secretariat. They had a chairperson. They, uh, you know, came up with like how many millimeters wide the, the thing should be and how deep it should be and how much charge it should deliver and what safety features it should have. And you can buy any standard car and any standard receptacle and the receptacle will fit in the car and connect to the car's electric system because it's standardized. And then there's adversarial interoperability. And adversarial interoperability mostly is digital because digital is flexible in a way that mm -hmm. other things aren't. There's this like um, underlying kind of theoretical thing in computer science, Turing completeness, the idea that a computer, a general purpose computer is really the only kind we know how to make and it can run all the programs that we can express in symbolic logic. Like we don't know how to make mostly general purpose computers. If we did, it would be boss because we can make printers that didn't also run viruses, but we don't. Like your printer can run all the programs your computer can run. And at various times in history, the most powerful computer in your house was probably your printer. And there is all kinds of weird malware and sketchy stuff for printers, right? So we only can make universal computers that's not a principle in the rest of the world. And so what that means is that if there is a product or service that is digital, you can, even if the manufacturer wants you to use it in a certain way, you can always write a program that will make it work in a different way that benefits you at their expense. And absent the law, there really isn't a technical countermeasure that they can take against you. Now, maybe you personally can't do it. I personally can't do it, but you know, Think about Netflix, right? Figuring out how to run Netflix without using Netflix's like approved code involves getting a copy of a Netflix stream and a copy of that approved code. That involves signing up for a free trial. And so mm -hmm. everyone in the world, including like 
bored grad students with their own electron tunneling microscopes at the lab and a bunch of undergrads who've got nothing to do this weekend, you know, hanging around like a bad smell. They can become an adversary of Netflix. They can like do all kinds of crazy things to it and they can generalize a means of watching Netflix without Netflix permission. So it's very hard to shut that out. And when you look at the history of technology growth, when you think about the kind of the dynamism that characterized the early years of consumer digital technology and the intuition that it gave to advocates for digital technology, that it was like this very dynamic world where a winner couldn't take all. And yesterday's giants would be tomorrow's, you know, has-beens and companies like Cray would get bought up by Silicon Graphics and Silicon Graphics would go to business and they wouldn't even be like, have nostalgia value. They couldn't sell their t-shirts anymore. Like just how did all of this, this, this kind of stuff happen? It happened because of adversarial interoperability. So uh, plugging modems into the phone lines without AT&T's permission, um, the IBM PC clones, right? So the IBM PC clones came about as a result of this guy, Tom Jennings, who if you're um, an old BBS person, you might remember a thing called FidoNet, which was a way to link up local dial-up BBSs. Tom created FidoNet. He's this queer uh, punk hardware engineer genius mm -hmm. whose employer Phoenix Computing said, here's the IBM PC ROM, go reverse engineer it. And he did. And then they got some Texas Instruments programmers who'd never touched an Intel processor. So they couldn't be accused of like stealing Intel code to mm -hmm. re-implement this in Silicon. And then they sold it to like Dell, Compaq, uh, Gateway, like every PC vendor that wasn't IBM that made a PC bought okay. these chips, right? <laughs> That's adversarial interoperability. And it's how you got like IBM not being the most successful vendor of IBM compatible PCs. IBM was like fourth, mm -hmm. right? Because there was this incredible dynamism. Google. Google shows up at every website in the world and says, hi, I'm a web user and I would just like all of these links, please. Right. That's adversarial interoperability. You know, Apple. Apple was about to be completely destroyed by Microsoft because Microsoft had deliberately held back development on Microsoft Office for the Mac. So if you're like the lone designer in like an engineering shop, your Quadra couldn't talk to any of those PCs. Uh, not only couldn't you network with them, but if they like put a Word document on a floppy and brought it over to you and you open it on your Quadra and then saved it again, it would be cursed forever. And no one, including you, would ever be able to open it. So instead, okay. like Steve Jobs just got some engineers to reverse engineer the file formats of Office and made iWork, right? Pages, mm -hmm. numbers, uh, or pages in Calc and, uh, and, and Keynote, which just read, reads and writes all those file formats. And it took what Microsoft thought of as a walled garden, where like, if you wanted to be in an office, you had to use a PC running a Microsoft operating system. And it turned it into a feedlot, where if you didn't like Microsoft Office, you could still talk to everyone who was a Microsoft Office user, and you could say to them, hey, you can switch. Like, you remember they ran these switch ads at that time. Mm -hmm. Like, it's easier than you ever thought. It's easier because we did this adversarial interop thing. So all these companies, they grow to enormous scale through adversarial interoperability. And what do they do when they, achieve, when they, when they get to the top of the ladder? They kick the fucking ladder away. Software patents, software copyrights, anti-circumvention, enforceable terms of service, non-compete, non-disclosure, like uh, these exotic theories, like the thing Oracle's pushing through the Supreme Court now, which is copyrights on APIs. And they basically make it illegal to displease their shareholders. Right? They, they create this like class of rules that we call IP, even though like many of them aren't even traditional IP, like you know trade secrecy or whatever is not what we think of when we think of IP, but also none of them are property. And 
they the thing that they all share in common, the, the only coherent category they all fit in, is their policies that allow a firm to reach out into the world to control the conduct of their competitors, their critics, and their customers. That's the battle we're facing. And digital gives us new remedies in, in these oligarchic systems that are not available in physical systems. So like to use an example from Australia, through various things, some of it was like would-be rail barons, some of it was like incoherence in the original states. Australian rail is all ra laid in different widths. There's different mm -hmm. gauges of rail. It's called mm -hmm. the multi-gauge model. And so like you can't get a rail car from one end of the country to the other. And so instead, uh, they have for 150 years tried to design rail cars that can drop a set of wheels, retract a set of wheels, change the wheelbase width. None of them ever worked. Right. After 150 <laughs> years, the answer is tear up the fucking railroad tracks. They're laying thousands of kilometers of new railroad track in Australia because that's all that's the only way you're going to get a rail car from one end of the country to the other. That's not true with digital. Right. When Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he had an Australian billionaire that he had to fight with. Right. It was it was Rupert Murdoch who owned MySpace. Uh, Facebook had a better interface than MySpace. They were more privacy preserving. That was Facebook's pitch for the first decade. We're the private network. We don't, uh, we don't advertise to you. We don't steal your data. We don't let Google see it, uh, whatever. Um, and Another so great like example it. of kicking the ladder out from under. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? and, and, and Facebook, like it was, its proposition was come to Facebook. None of your friends are here yet, but if they ever show up, it will be better, right? And that was not a good proposition. So Zuck made a bot. You gave the bot your login credentials, your user and password to go to MySpace, pretend to be you, grab your waiting messages, stick them in your Facebook inbox. You could reply to them and push them back out to your MySpace inbox. The little footer mm. that said, you know, send from Facebook. Why the fuck are you still on MySpace? Right. <laughs> and, and, and Rupert had no remedies because that was before the ladder was kicked away. And so Zuck was able to, to turn this network effect thing that's often posed in competition discussions as a kind of dispositive, like final boss. You'll never undo the network effects. And he was able to turn it to his advantage that a network effect can benefit a new market entrant, including a cooperative, a non-commercial entity, uh, someone who wants to be better than Facebook, someone who's, who's not motivated by making Peter Thiel rich enough to ensure a steady supply of children's blood. Um, that, allegedly, that, allegedly, alleged children's blood. They may not be children. They may just be very sylph-like twenty-year-olds. Um, and, and you know that that like there are lots of things we need to do to fix tech to make it. You know, this Kiwi um, software developer says that I remember when the web wasn't five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things we're going to need to do to like make it not that. And among the things that we should be doing is interop. An adversarial interrupt so that we can have more technological self-determination, not to like fetishize competition as a good under its unto itself, but so that people and communities can have the technology that suits them, irrespective of whether it interests or is not hostile to or fails to gore the ox of the shareholders of giant corporations. That's my yeah. I mean, there, there's there's a lot there to to dig into. And it is a really interesting story of this kind of like. Uh, you know, the cyclical, right, like people like Zuckerberg, people like Steve Jobs, right, like these people like benefit from taking advantage of this kind of like adversarial, this like hacker mentality, right? Like we, we're, we're just hackers here. And we're, 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 we're 
you know, doing interop and we're reverse engineering and we're breaking down the walled gardens until the hacker becomes a founder. Um, and then and then once they're the founder, right, like now they have a different set of interests and values. Um, and suddenly those old hacker values are not compatible with the founder values. And so I feel like we can see this really like interesting double-edged sword here. Like it also reminds me as well, um, I made a joke a while ago, you know, like looking at, you know, when you, when you were talking just now, Corey, I was, in my mind, I was thinking of the 1995 film Hackers, right? Like Angelina Jolie and Matthew Lillard, right? Like, like these are the people that are doing adversarial interoperability and they're hacking the systems and they're figuring out glitches and they're doing weird phone freaking and stuff like that. And I made a joke a while ago that like those people from hackers now work for the CIA um, mm. and work like they all grew up, right? Like those were just like childish uh, little things that they were doing and then they grew up and now they work for the CIA or they work for Facebook or they work for Google. So it sounds to me like what you're saying um, as well is that whether through law or something, uh, there needs to be some kind of security or assurances that something like adversarial interoperability can be a constant that that you, that people like Zuckerberg or Jobs or whoever can't benefit from it and then kick the ladder out from under them once they've gotten theirs. Yeah, you know, as to like the kind of the microeconomics of like being a techie who who works for Facebook or Palantir, you know, I think that's a fracture line that's like ripe for exploitation in solidarity movements. Like w- one mm-hmm. of the reasons we're seeing you know, Amazon tech workers making solidarity with Amazon warehouse workers is, you know, the internal contradiction of like having falling in love with computers because of the self-determination you get from them, you know, writing code Mm -hmm. that runs and then sharing the code with other people and they can run and you find a community and they can express the things that you've always thought, but didn't know the words for. And then like you get a job and you're not there to like, make a dent in the universe the way Steve Jobs said, you know, you, you'd get to do if you were a tech founder, like because of Monopoly, like all you can hope for is an aqua hire where you get a big hiring bonus that's, that's kind of built up uh, to the balance sheet as though it were a buyout, but it's just a, a hiring bonus. And then like you get free massages and kombucha, right? And that is like, you know, like, like selling your soul to be a billionaire, like I, I, I get it, right? Like, like just the, you know, to, to have like this incredible power and whatever, but selling your soul to work, you know, 90 hours a week doing shitty things that to people that make you hate yourself and help them. And then all you get for it is these like, you know, minor material comforts. And then, you know, for the last year, you don't even get those. I think that like, that's where 20,000 Googlers walking off the job comes from. Is mm-hmm. that they're they're just they're just not understanding it. As to how we get interoperability back, comcom or adversarial interoperability back, I think we're, you know, at this point, this crossroads, where uh, some conservatives and liberals and leftists are converging on the idea that the big tech firms have too much power, right? They have different theories about why. They have different things they'd like to do to, to reform them and so on. But there is this weird confluence, right? Where like there's, there's, there's several different power blocks who are all landing in the same place. And I think that it gives us the opportunity to imagine 
means by which interoperability might be restored. Like maybe, like we could do it through the courts. Uh, at EFF, we've been uh, suing the U.S. government for about five years now on behalf of Bunny Huang, who's the MIT engineer who um, broke the Xbox, and Matthew Green, who's a mm. cryptographer at uh, Johns Hopkins, to overturn the law that bans circumvention of DRM. And if we did that, it would go a long way to making it lawful to do adversarial interoperability. But courts are slow, right? Legislatures are very slow. Courts are slow. Like one of the reasons people like consumer movements is back when there was competition, consumer movements were really fast, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you would like a bunch of people would boycott a company and the company would change because it was worried that they would lose the business to another company. That's not a problem anymore. Right? Right. Like if you go to, if you go to the grocery store and you pick up like the organic brand and the recycling packaging brand and the cruelty free brand, and then the maximum cruelty and the least organic and the uh, least recyclable brand, they're all made by one company. They're yeah. just segmenting their fucking audience, right? And it's not like they've changed their behavior. They've just got, it's like the Duff beer thing where there's like six was, things coming on. It's all like one giant shoot making the Duff beer. I so, was gonna say the, the the Simpsons reference exactly. I mean, that is exactly it, right? Like, yeah, it, yeah you go to the grocery store and it's it's not only tech stuff, right? It's like Procter & Gamble, right? Like, yeah. like it's all internal competition, right? Like every brand of household clean is all owned by Procter and Gamble, and it's all just subsidiaries of Procter and Gamble competing against each other. Yeah, right. well, and they're not supposed to be, but they usually are because they end up turning into like these little, you know, Machiavellian satrapies where they everyone's <laughs> everyone's a duke and stabbing the other dukes in the back, you know. But but they're not supposed to be. And and you know, it's funny. I um I once went to an authors festival in Singapore, and on the last day, the Canadian consulate took me for a TV interview. Uh, and I was like, who's this with? And they said, oh, it's with our TV station, The Choice. And I said, The Choice. And they said, yeah, they <laughs> shut down the other one and renamed this one The Choice. I was like, that's <laughs> funny. And then I saw Procter & Gamble press release where they bought out some little micro brand that made, I don't know, organic baby food or something. And they said, we bought this because we know consumers want choice. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, like that. Singapore really is the future. <laughs> so, yeah, so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I mean, the, the, this fracture line, right? Um, and this fracture line in techies, this weird coalition in politics and economics gives us this opportunity. And there are things that are faster than lawsuits or any of this other stuff, like government procurement, right? Like government procurement, I think, is a really easy way to get through to this. Like mm -hmm. if your school district buys 50,000 iPads because they need to run one app, and they don't get from Apple like a binding covenant not to sue reverse engineers who allow them to continue to run that app if Apple like gets angry at them and kicks them out of the app store. They're doing a really bad job in procurement, right? Like same with Google Classroom, right? Like Google Classroom without the ability to plug in other ed tech platforms is, is basically setting Google up to kick you in the ass repeatedly for mm -hmm. the duration of your electronic learning experiment, right? So... You know, there are lots of areas where this can work in procurement. The first adversarial interoperability mandate came from the Civil War when the union side insisted that all of its guns come from manufacturers that wouldn't stop other manufacturers from making parts and ammo for them because yep. they were like, what do we fucking do, right? Like, what do we do if you just can't make our guns anymore, right? If we need a part and you don't have the part anymore, or do we like, do we call time out on the war 
while we get our while like our preferred manufacturer sorts their shit out. So you know, like this is this is an area where there's you could just make something happen like really fast. You know, this is what we did after Ajit Pai killed network neutrality in America is the states all pass laws saying the state governments and city governments and county governments can only procure neutral internet. And so all the ISPs were like, either you lose all your government contracts or you maintain net neutrality and they sued over it. And so it didn't happen, but they've just won the lawsuit. So we've now got network neutrality back in California effectively because the California governments are huge customers for data service and they're just they, they can't buy it if it's not neutral so mm-hmm. you know the fcc might sort it out now that now that ajit pai is out of the fcc but we don't have to wait for that in california we get it right now and mm-hmm. if we got it in like app stores or if we got it in like learnware or if we got it in you know mobile phones or whatever like if we just told apple yeah we're not gonna we know every time we pass a right to repair bill you kill it we're not going to pass a right to repair bill. Or maybe we still will try to do that. But what we're going to do in the meantime is just say the government can't buy any phones unless they can be repaired by third parties, right? Like California could end up exporting good repair practices to the rest of the country the way Texas re- exports shitty textbooks to the rest of the country. You're goddamn right. The right to repair bill is really interesting and definitely something that we need to dive into because I, I think it it's where the rubber hits the road with a lot of people in terms of thinking about something like adversarial interoperability or even just the the ability to to modify and change things. I think that is an example that speaks to a lot of people. Uh, before I forget about it, though, the the example of like the the Civil War and and guns, uh, it reminds me as well that this is <laughs> this is actually where um, Eli Whitney, inventor of the cotton gin, uh, first kind of made his name as an uh, industrialist was he was making interchangeable parts for guns and built up this kind of like big industrial empire doing that before going on to 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 do the cotton gin so it you know which yeah. is also which is also really interesting as well. Um, we we are not a pro Eli Whitney podcast, <laughs> um, but I think that is really interesting. Where it, it's another uh, case where you see, uh, like you know, a, a big industrialist, whether it's you know in the industrial revolution or the digital revolution, whatever, right? A big capitalist. Uh, kind of latches on to something like adversarial interoperability and uh, and and you know not perverts it but really I mean in the case of Eli Whitney like weaponizes it for for their for their own ends yeah. right and it, it gets back to something we've talked about like with our standards episode as well where it's like you know we we really came down hard on the standardization of things but largely that was because of the way that it's currently happening right the, the way that it is uh, a, a form of corporate sovereignty that these corporations kind of create their own little fiefdoms and then roll that out through these universal standards so the the question of interoperability is really important for this because for a long time that's been the holy grail of the internet of things and in particular the industrial iot right where it's like uh, there, there are so many battles between like IBM and Cisco and Simmons and these big tech firms that are like, they want to be the one to set the standards for interoperability because there is so much power and wealth to be gained by having interoperability in this way. It does seem like a, an arena that's ripe for 
this kind of disruption. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> disruption, but also right oligopolies like fighting with each yeah. other. Like like you were saying, yeah. you know, like these dukes stabbing each other in the back, right? Like like they want to be the ones to say that no, our standard, our protocol is the universal one for interoperability. Yeah, well, so like the investor class, they're all switches, right? They, they'll be a top or a bottom. So, you know, they're happy like being the person who fences everyone out with interoperability. And they're also happy being the entity that destroys some other entity with interoperability. That's like, they're, they're, they'll play both sides of the streets. In some ways, that's the secret weapon here. It's kind of why SDO, why standards development organizations exist in the first place, is it's like the detente that allows the firms to try to jostle for a playing field where you know maybe they can like leverage an advantage but at least no one will leverage an advantage over them i i um, my first day on the job at eff 19 years ago was uh flying to la for a standards body meeting by the movie industry that the movie industry had had set up with intel and the consumer electronics companies and the it industry called the broadcast protection discussion group and it was drm for television uh, for for ATSC, which is Australia, Canada, the U.S., Japan, and some South American countries. Everyone else was was um, DBB, mm-hmm. and w- what they wanted was a mandate. So they the, the the background on this is hilarious. This is this is the kind of boondoggle that you get when you in in law and tech, right? The FCC won't let you broadcast encrypted television because it's the public's airwaves, right? Mm-hmm. So. But they really wanted people to start broadcasting digital television because they want to take the analog spectrum back and sell it to cell phone companies. And so no one would broadcast in digital because they were like, uh, we don't want to broadcast HD, we'll be pirated, blah, 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 blah. And so what they said is, okay, we've got the answer. We're going to have a rule that says that even though all the broadcasts are in the clear, all receivers capable of receiving those broadcasts have to pretend that they weren't and pretend that they were encrypted, encrypt them when they land and only share ciphertext with other devices so that you can't just like make a TiVo that works with them. Mm-hmm. It was the craziest goddamn idea. Yeah. And there were and there was Rep Billy Tozen, who's now the head of pharma, the pharmaceutical lobby, had promised them that he would get them a law if they would, if they would only do it. And the reason everyone was there, uh, at least on the tech side, is they were afraid that if they didn't show up, then all the other companies would make a deal that would mm-hmm. include their technologies, not the other ones. And the whole thing was run by two consortia called 5C, which was a consortium of five company, and 4C, mm-hmm. which is a consortium of four companies. And <laughs> Intel was the only member of both of those consortia. Intel mm-hmm. was chairing the group. And their the Intel's like uh, October surprise was right after the report was written. There was like this appendix mm-hmm. that was going to say whose technology in and whose technology was out. And what they said was, your technology is only in if it's a 4C technology, a 5C technology, or if at least four major movie studios or 10 TV studios, which is hilarious. We don't even have four movie studios and 10 right, TV right. studios anymore. But only four movie studios and 10, or 10 TV studios like vote you in. Otherwise, you're not on the island. So all these companies that showed up and like, humiliated themselves to the film industry who would just scream at them like they're they're such shouty people right like if you can't win the argument with math win it by shouting and they would just show up and just shower these poor nerds with abuse and then in the end like intel shows up and it's like hey guys i got a deal for you that deal is only our technology is in all your technology is out 
but it looks really legitimate because the whole industry was here the whole time. So right. no one can accuse us of cooking this up on our own behind closed doors. And the only reason we got there was that they had a midnight meeting at NAB at the National Association of Broadcasters Conference in Vegas that was not on the schedule, but there was a sign by the door that said open meeting, copy protection, technical working group, which is part of <laughs> America, open meeting, right? Like beware of the leopard. And, and someone who was a supporter of ours went in there and was like, hey guys, they're going to do this next week in LA. And it's, it's open to the public, but they don't announce it anywhere. It's like a hundred bucks to get in. It's at the Four Point Sheraton by LAX. You should get on a Southwest flight and just show up and see what they're doing, which we did. And they were like, why are you guys here? We're like, it's an open meeting, right? And they're like, yeah, but you know, we didn't tell anyone about it. <laughs> we're like, yeah, we know, we know you didn't tell anyone about it. But we'll give you the stink eye the whole time that you're here. It was, it was a remarkable experience. It really was. It was literally the first thing I did. Like it was actually before I was technically on the payroll. Uh, I, I, I had um, I'd taken the job and they were like, well, your start date is like next week, but, or, you know, a week Monday. But this Monday, there's this meeting we think you'd be really good at. Will you just like meet these people who are now your colleagues at SFO and fly to LAX and see if you can figure out what's going on? And that was the start of it all. And we ended up killing, it ended up getting through the FCC and we ended up killing it in the second circuit with a lawsuit because it ended up basically the FCC making a rule that said all digital computing devices need to be approved by the FCC, which is like significantly beyond its jurisdiction. And so mm. the, the second circuit was like, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, you don't get that. And then by then, because Intel had like shot its wad, right? Because they'd like revealed what the true purpose was. No one was going to show up for another round of negotiations to try and make another version of it because no one trusted Intel anymore. There was a hearing recently, the House Antitrust Subcommittee talking about interoperability. Mm -hmm. um, well, so the companies framed it in a way where they would welcome it and they would try to do data portability and seem to want to speak about it in uh, in terms where it was to their advantage. And then there was a wave of coverage afterwards. Specifically, I'm thinking of The Economist's like, cover story on this, where their argument was that uh, big tech is already fighting with itself, right? That market share is already decreasing, um, that competition is already fierce, and that it's just that it's just right below the the first you know, market leader and we're not noticing it. And so maybe the solutions we need are not supposed to be uh, to do structural separation, to do adversarial interoperability, but to do a sort of um, more space to compete and collaborate, right? And I'm interested, you know, with this example in the entertainment industry, do you, do you worry that if the tech giants are allowed to talk uh, and, and and advocate for, the, for themselves for the way they're going to be forced to port over information um, that it may end up being like just stuff cooked behind closed doors, but given the veneer, like within yeah, tell yeah. of, uh, of legitimacy. Yeah. So I just co-authored a paper about this. Uh, I was the junior author. All credit goes to my co-author, a guy named Bennett Cyphers, who's one of our technologists. And yes, EFF has a technologist whose last name is Cyphers. I know. He didn't, like change it to that. He's not like Kim.com or anything. He was like born <laughs> with that name. Nomenclature uh, determinism is real. Yeah, yeah. Nomenclature determinism. So he's uh so we wrote this paper called Privacy Without Monopoly, because one of the things that the tech giants say is like we need a veto over interop because we are guardians of, of privacy, 
And, mm. and they are where privacy is like co-terminal with their shareholders' interests, like this is Apple's pitch, right? We don't sell your data. No, they don't sell your data. They will collaborate with the Chinese government <laughs> to, to, to backdoor your phone, but they won't sell your data. So like if you get like put in jail and your organs harvested for a party member, it wasn't to like sell you sneakers. It was just because they wanted access to Foxconn manufacturing. But, you know, I'm sure that that doesn't matter to the people whose privacies are being damaged. I think that we, we started this, this talk talking about uh, like different layers of interoperability, adversarial mm -hmm. mandated. Uh, and one of the things about a mandate, there is a mandate proposed in the U.S. through the Access Act of 2020. And there's also mandates proposed in the EU through the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. And in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority has proposed some mandates as well. And the mandates look good, right? They're like, you have to expose this stuff. You, can, you know, one of the mandates, one of the interesting things about the mandates is that because the companies are so anti-competitive, right? And because they've pursued this acquisitions-driven growth strategy where they just buy all their competitors, they have APIs already, right? Because that's how Facebook talks to Instagram. And yeah. so like one of the arguments was like, that's going to be a good API because you don't have any structural reason to nerf it. And so we're just going to make you expose that API, right? So like, if I need to talk to Facebook, I'm going to use the, the API that Instagram uses to talk to Facebook. And we don't even have to ask like what its formal characteristics are because we know going in, it's as good as Facebook knows how to make it. The problem with that is they can neutralize it. So in 2012, the, the people of Massachusetts voted a ballot initiative for right to repair on cars, where they said that cars, automotive manufacturers had to provide decoding uh, steps for all the information on the wired buses in the car, the CAN bus that moves all the data around. So independent mechanics could fix cars, diagnose and fix cars. So what the manufacturers do, they moved all that stuff to wireless interfaces, right? And so like, yes. it's, it's not, you know, if you have a mandate that like year zero says this API is good, therefore you have to expose it, but doesn't say you can't nerf the API, then they'll just like take, they'll, they'll restructure not what data is flowing over the API, but whether that data is relevant to a competitor. Mm -hmm. They'll just they'll just like find a way to subvert the mandate, right? Oh, and the, the punchline of the Massachusetts story is they just had another uh, ballot initiative and it was like an 80% for ballot initiative. And so we're back, we're back with good diagnostics for cars, although they're fighting it in court, they'll lose. So, so um, what do we do to prevent them from subverting the mandate uh, if we can write, assuming we can write a good mandate, what do we do to stop them from subverting the mandate? What produces the equilibrium where we don't have another five-year legislative fight to fix the mandate or have to do ballot initiatives or whatever, where the firms themselves are like disciplined by their own, you know, internal logics so that subverting the mandate makes things worse for them, not better. And I think that's where ComCom comes in because imagine you've got like a managed structured market, right? Like a kind of Brandeisian, like New Dealish kind of market, where a regulator comes in and says, expose these APIs. We've got some privacy rules about how they have to be managed. Maybe we've got some fiduciaries who decide who can use them. Maybe we do some like, we decide what a super normal profit is. And we don't allow people to make it, whatever, right? Like some kind of structured stuff. And uh, that's like the ground state of the things. And so they can try to subvert it. But if they try to subvert it, and you're Facebook, and there's like, Facebook without the privacy taken away, that's run by a co-op of users or by, you know, political parties or by startups or by Swedish social Democrats or whatever, the pirate party or whatever, right? You've got this like mm -hmm. other platform that does stuff that people like. And so people are there and you're going to 
fuck with it now, right? You're going to try to break it by subverting the mandate. That firm now has the users and resources to like mire you in a cold war of trying to detect their bots that are just mm -hmm. like backforming interoperability with your service without your consent, without your permission, without your cooperation. And there'll be days when they get it wrong and days when they get it right. All those users are going to hate you. All the users on your service who talk to those users are also going to hate you. You know, Mint was this like early fintech startup that was, you know, relatively benign given what fintech is now. And all it did was you gave it your login credentials for your bank and it would go get your data so that you could see it all in one place. It would give you like mm -hmm. your, these accounts and these accounts all next to each other. And whenever a bank would shut off the Mint bot, Mint would give the users who use that bank an error message that said like, Bank of America has shut down access to your account. The name of the lawyer who sent us the letter is this. This is his <laughs> phone number, right? <laughs> and it just, it just like the equilibrium that emerged was not that Mint still scrapes all those services. The equilibrium that emerged was that they finally wrote a fucking useful standard. And now, now there's like dozens of those things and some of them are super gross, but you know, like it's a, if the alternative to a managed system is a chaotic system with unlimited downsides where your engineering talent is now like entirely mired in this game of like four dimensional chess with other engineers and your users hate you for doing it and you look like an asshole for doing it. And maybe this attracts more antitrust scrutiny of the sort that you evaded by having interoperability be like the first step. Then I think that it, it creates the space like it's, I don't think that's our answer, but I think that that creates the space where instead of having to spend all of our time fighting to get more interoperability so that we can use these services to organize ourselves, because we've got to, I mean, that's the tragedy of big tech, right? Is that like digital networks are how we organize. I spent a lot of years wheat pasting posters to telephone poles to get people out to demonstrations. I dropped out of high school for a year to fight the first Gulf invasion. Mm -hmm. It is a really inefficient process, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like we need we need digital communications tools we we're in this kind of race as to whether the companies that own the tools destroy us before we can enact meaningful reforms we can buy time with a moderately stable interoperability system that combines adversarial and mandated interoperability to produce an equilibrium where by and large they don't fuck with us and when they do, we have a remedy because that's the other piece, right? If there's no ComCom, if there's just a mandate and they shut you off, then nothing happens until you get a court to order them to stop screwing around or you pass a new law. If there's ComCom, then what you get is an immediate reestablishment of communications, albeit through a less reliable system. And that means we can keep fighting. I mean, all that is really interesting. I want to go back to something that I think gets to like the the mint example and gets to a a, a phrase that ed used the data portability right and i know this is something you've written about in terms of adversarial interoperability and i think there's um you know I've, I've been seeing some other articles recently that have also been kind of putting this forward as a as a solution right so this mm -hmm. idea that you should be able to 
uh, you know, liberate your data as it's often talked about, making it portable and interoperable where you can take data from one service uh, and use that data in, in another service, right? The idea here for, I think, a lot of people is that makes something like switching really easy, right? If you want to go from one, one walled garden, one platform to another, the thing that makes that really hard uh, is that all of your messages, all of your data, all of your personalized settings, all everything that you've spent all this time doing on that platform is trapped in that platform. Um, and, uh, and a lot of people are now putting forward this idea of like data portability and, and kind of trying to conceive of what that might look like through like, uh, you know, like third party data trusts that have some kind of fiduciary responsibility to manage that. Could you just talk a little bit about what what is data portability and how does that uh, mesh with um, adversarial interoperability. So data portability is not adversarial. Data portability is mm -hmm. is, is always going to be standards defined, right? Jeremy in the in the chat says is like taking your cell phone number along. Yeah, it's like taking your cell phone number along, mm -hmm. right? Like, I guess there would be a way that you could take your cell phone number to a new provider without the the cooperation of the company, but it would have to be something like you and a confederate, you would call up your phone company and retire your number while your confederate was calling and setting up a new account and says, can I have this number right at the right moment? And like, maybe mm -hmm. you could get it, but you know, it's hard, right? As opposed to now where we just got number porting and you just, you just tell them you're doing it. It just happens. So data portability is, is, is the idea is that you have a mandate, uh, that requires firms or maybe a voluntary process, but, uh, but, uh, a cooperative process where the firm packages up your data into a big chunk and it lets you have it when you go somewhere else. Uh, and that may be of, of some use. There's certainly some ways in which it would be of use. Like if it's your G drive, that's pretty useful. Although if it's a G drive that you've got a bunch of shared items in, all those URLs die. So unless there's also a way to like tell the people what new stable URL they can find it at, it's it's a, again of, of, of limited utility. It's, it's like a necessary but insufficient condition for creating more self-determination. I often, like the metaphor I often frame this in is my um, my immigration experience, my grandmother's immigration experience. Because my, my grandmother was uh, like, a, when she was inducted into the uh, um, civil service during the siege of Leningrad when she was 12. She was evacuated when she was 15. She ended up in the Red Army. She left the Red Army and came to Canada as a refugee. And leaving was really momentous, right? It meant that she lost touch. Not only did she surrender everything she had, but she lost touch with her family for 15 years and uh, like didn't know if they were alive or dead, never spoke to them. My dad has this haunting story about his mother picking up the phone in Toronto one day and saying, mama, mama. And it was like her mother making contact after 15 years when she mm. hadn't spoken to her, right? Since she was a child, since she was evacuated. Now I moved from like Toronto to San Francisco to London, to LA, to London, to LA, right? I've, I've made like multiple transatlantic moves. So I get to take my stuff with me, right? That's like data portability. Like not only can I take my stuff with me, like I have like weird appliances that I quite like that I bought in the UK that I brought with me and I just have mains adapters for them. Like I have a theremin and you know, <laughs> it runs, I just got a, like a 240 to 110 adapter. Like that's, that's portability, right? Mm -hmm. But it, the portability, would still be a very in, insufficient answer if I couldn't still talk to my family, right? So like this morning we had Zoom calls with Toronto, Wales, and London, right? And we were able to do that because we, not, we don't just have data portability, we have interoperability. Like I can, mm. our phone systems talk to each other, our networks talk to each other. And 
I can't imagine having made those choices in the same way if I didn't uh, have portability with me. Like I have friends who grew up in the Church of Scientology. And one of the things that took their family a long time to leave the cult was that all of their friends were in the cult. And mm -hmm. the cult has a rule that you're not allowed to talk to people who leave the cult. And so leaving the cult means leaving behind all your friends, right? So there are people who are in bad situations, people who are uh, exposed to intimate partner violence, right? One of the reasons they don't leave is because it means cutting off their old life, right? They have to, the switching costs are high. And so the, the equilibrium where they, like it's bad, but not so bad that they don't leave is horrible. And so the cheaper we make it for people to change their minds about the arrangements they're in to make self-determination choices, better the outcomes tend to be, although people can make foolish choices, right? Like you might, instead of leaving your abusive partner relationship to find a better one, you might join the Church of Scientology, right? Like, in fact, I think a lot of their members come out of abusive situations. So, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that the people will automatically make wise choices, but the, without the opportunity to make a choice that reflects like your lived experience, the particularities of your needs, you know, and this, this is back down to like having the ability to change the software that you use. So, you know, I was in a huge fight at the W3C for multiple years over DRM and web browsers for video. And one of the things we argued was that DRM would stop people who had disabilities from adapting the software to their needs. And they said, no, we have lots of ad adaptations built in. We have captions, we have this, we have that, we have the other. And I was like, I have a friend who's got photosensitive epilepsy who was hospitalized after turning on a Netflix movie. She could hire someone to write code or she could write code that looked ahead in the video and damped down any strobe effects. Is that in this spec? No. Could you build it? No right? Mm -hmm. do, do we know what the right damping level is for all people with photosensitive epilepsy? Or would that, that also have to be different and something that was left up to people whose use cases were things you can't imagine that you like have no direct experience of that involve circumstances that are like weird and hard to understand? You know, Right to Repair got a big goose out of the pandemic because Right to Repair uh, opponents assume that you can always go to an authorized service technician, right? Well, let, that like didn't happen. You know, we had months where we were locked down and that was terrible when it was your phone, but Medtronic makes the world's most successful ventilator and they block right to repair using DRM. And so you couldn't swap a screen from a, from a dead ventilator into a working ventilator with a busted screen because Medtronic blocks it. And, you know, what had been a $170 service call grift became a, I'm sorry, your ventilator doesn't work in the middle of a pandemic grift. And it, it, it changed the calculus because, the, you know, they just didn't understand what could have happened, right? They couldn't plan for all contingencies. And a world where everything that's not mandatory is forbidden is a world that cannot cope gracefully with unforeseen contingencies. I've worked in the medical equipment field for about 20 years uh, up until last year. And what you're discussing was something that we face quite a bit. A lot of companies putting out proprietary equipment that, you know, for some people worked really well, but finding replacement parts or, you know, new screens or things like that was always, it was always a sense of like, we were constantly scrambling, trying to find solutions for people because even if those parts and that stuff existed, there wasn't a guarantee that, you know, A, the patient would be able to afford it. Of course, being in the United States where something like that happens, you know, the availability of said part, you know, because yeah. 
a lot of times, and then of course, this, a lot of this is previous to the era of like 3D printers. So we couldn't just, you know, sure. get specs and port it into a 3D printer and then print the part out. I mean, we were for wheelchairs as an example, like all the major manufacturers of power wheelchairs, they all have their own proprietary programmers with with different specs that log, you know, that plug into the uh, computers on those wheelchairs. And a lot of times you have companies that would, as a, as a way to prevent you or a service provider from being able to repair their wheelchairs without having them involved, made their programmers unattainable. But on the flip side, you have some that would just give the programmers out for free, knowing that it only worked on their equipment, that you couldn't get it to work on other people's equipment. And then enterprising people would come along and splice those programmers so they'd be able to use, you know, universal programmers. And then when the, of course, you know, when the representative from the company found out you were, you no longer had an account with them and couldn't get equipment from them anymore. So, you know, they, they always find their ways to, especially in the medical field, because there's so much money to be made. You know, a lot of this rings true, like you were just saying. It's the world's most captive audience, right? People, people who like need a implanted pacemaker, right? They don't, mm-hmm. it's not like, well, I'll, I'll go a couple more years, right? Uh, it, with the ventilators, the solution was what you just described. There's a Polish tech who'd been certified by MedTech and then quit. And he still had the code generator that did the unlock step. And he would toast it onto like EPROMs or FPGAs and put them in improvised casings made out of old alarm clocks and guitar pedals and mail them to med techs around the world during the, the height of the lockdown to fix their, their Medtronic ventilators. But you know, Medtronic, like back to right to repair and, and self-determination, Medtronic is a giant company. They're, they they undertook the largest inversion, tax inversion in history. So they're a tax-free conglomerate nominally headquartered somewhere in the Irish Sea. And they have very, very bad security practices in part because they have so much excess rent that they can mobilize it to secure a limitation of liability for killing people with shitty gadgets. And they ignore or threaten security researchers who do independent research on this, including that there was security research that revealed that the wireless interfaces on their implanted defibrillators and their implanted pacemakers were insecure by default. And there's a good reason to have a wireless interface on these things. It's not like, oh, why does my fridge have Wi-Fi? Like the reason your pacemaker has Wi-Fi is because otherwise a field update requires like fucking surgery, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's got Wi-Fi, right? It's got a wireless interface, but they show that you could stop someone's heart from like 10 paces. And so, you know, Dick Cheney got an implanted defibrillator with where the wireless interface was turned off. So all of his firmware updates involve a scalpel and general anesthetic and a rib spreader. But, you know, for the rest of us, we were just like, you know, in the cold when it when it came to buying these things. So again, you know, the, the world is full of people who want to exercise agency, the story that the manufacturers and sometimes like skeptics tell of like, nobody wants to change their technology. That's such, just some dumb nerd shit you believe. It's not dumb nerd shit, right? <laughs> like the, the world is full of people with type one diabetes who yeah. want to connect a continuous glucose monitor to an insulin pump and do some like, basic statistics to determine like bolus size to maintain a uh, constant um, blood sugar level 
And, you know, Abbott Labs used the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to shut down the code that did that and take it off GitHub because they had to do a circumvention step, right? Because the, because interoperating without their permission was unlawful because they had the DMCA, this law EFF is suing over. So it's this nexus of lack of competition, uh, lack of anti-monopoly enforcement, uh, mobilizing monopoly rents to secure policies that are beneficial to concentrated industries, and the the outcome being that we individuals are de deprived of all the agency and self-determination that we could want that that we can use and that you know to give the early technological utopians their due that is amazing if you have it you know the early technology technological utopians weren't blind to the harms of technology gone awry you know you don't start eff if you think it's all going to be fine right Mm -hmm. But what they, what I think we missed, at least a lot of us missed, was that without antitrust enforcement, that under you know kind of Reagan's antitrust enforcement theories, that would only be amplified by every administration afterwards, and picked up and and made part of the orthodoxy in all the so-called Western countries, that all of that all that self determination would go by the wayside and be replaced by monopoly. <laughs> do you see um it as becoming um a practice that we can incorporate more into our technical systems through these big tech giants as sort of examples as we try to pare them down to size and figure out ways to uh, introduce more competition as a first step, but also to survey like what the best way to have a Facebook or a Google in our society is? Or do you think that the best route or maybe best adoption route is through devices that people need in their everyday lives that also mm -hmm. happen to be networked, whether they're you know medical devices or whether they're consumer goods or services. I mean, they're consumer goods or services, but they're still, you know, necessary and used by a large amount of yeah. people. Well, I think though, you know, in terms of the thing that people just understand immediately, mm -hmm. it's not med tech, it's not IoT, it's printers. Mm -hmm. Everybody understands that it. it's such a ripoff. It's so abusive. And um, the printer companies, like they're very concentrated. So they've all converged on a set of really bad policies. But even so those policies like get just weirdly terrible, like in, um, HP has now, it's, its new thing is it will send you what seems to be a security update uh, mm -hmm. for your printer, but what it actually does is patches it so that it can detect and reject third-party ink. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't do it immediately, it like waits six months so that you don't tell your friends, wait, wait, don't install that patch. You won't be able to mm -hmm. use all the ink that you just bought for your kid for school this year. So they, they have got such, disgusting grifts and everyone gets it right like when you talk about printers no one has had a good experience with their printer right like i i feel like my printer company gives me such a fair deal said no one anywhere ever right it's, they're just <laughs> right. They're so bad um and they also just keep inventing new ways of being terrible so hp now has uh ink that you rent so you don't own the ink in the cartridge you pay to print a certain number of pages a month and then if you go over you pay for more but they, they just send you the ink in the mail. And so it monitors everything you print to decide whether you're going to get more ink in the mail this week. Oh, and God, it incorporates the predictive uh, shopping. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. So here's the best part. They um, when they rolled this out to tempt people to it, they're like, OK, but we also have a 10 pages a month for free for life offer. 
So just buy it. And like, it comes with 10 pages a month for free for life. <laughs> so like last year they were like, guess what? You're all dead. Cause, cause you know, this lifetime offer has been rescinded for your convenience. It's now a 99 cent a month offer. And you know, oh. <laughs> a buck a month, whatever, if you can afford a printer, I think a lot of people who can afford a printer can afford a dollar a month. It's it's not like when your gas bill goes up by a dollar a month and there's people who are counting pennies to figure out if they can afford it. Printers are like more of a discretionary item. Uh, even so, everybody was like, that dollar is the most unjust dollar that HP has ever earned. Like, I mm -hmm. don't care if it's only a dollar. That the foundational bullshittiness of you extracting a dollar from me or I have to throw out my printer now, is just like beyond the pale and you know of course this being hp they're they're like not good at it so even as they were telling people this offer is now a 99 cent a month offer there was still inventory in stores including on web stores that said buy this and get 10 pages a month for free for life so like mm -hmm. in the same on the same day as people were getting mm -hmm. these emails they still had the offer out there so you know there's just like no credible claim that you know you agreed to it it was in the fine print you know like whatever it was just it was just purely like the accounting basis for this was go fuck yourself yeah. right like you know i refer you to the to the precedential case of go fuck yourself versus go fuck yourself <laughs> go fuck yourself right that was the entire rubric for it you know we're the phone company we don't have to care and people just like they hate that shit so if there's you know I'm only half serious joking when I say that like the revolution might start over printer ink. People hate it. Yeah. I mean, it's very, the printer example is very interesting as well. Cause I think there's a really stark generational divide between, <laughs> between printers. I, I, I saw people actually tweeting about this recently. Like printers are such a Gen X thing. Cause I think millennials and zoomers have have like largely abandoned the idea of, of having printers for exactly this reason, right? Because right. it is like uh, such a janky machine that for very technical reasons, just, you know, jams and doesn't work very well um, and all that. I mean, now you got laser, blah, 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 whatever. But also for these like more kind of legal and economic reasons, uh, the, it, it is such a horrible business model that it's like, all right, I will just, I will just forego ever printing anything ever again. Yeah. Who needs it, right? Um, I think it really gets in a, that example, the printer example, the example of um, the right to repair, right? The fact that like cars now are just computers on wheels. Um, and because of that, right, they have software licenses embedded in them and, and they're networked and they have upgrades and it gives, and, but through that, uh, it gives the manufacturer, you know, this remote access to the thing so that with like the HP example, you can force a kind of firmware update that then uh, rolls out all these other new kinds of uh, restrictions and gives the manufacturer new access to data or access uh, con remote control over the thing. Uh, th this has now been expanded to include everything right anything and everything with uh with a software license which increasingly is everything uh has has these kinds of uh relationships of control what i you know what i've called the internet of landlords right where it's like this sure. proliferation of landlord you know it's not only the landlord that owns the house you live in but now you have a landlord that owns your car your toothbrush your coffee maker uh i mean the, there's so many comical examples of this with like you know like juicero 
right? This Juicero put like DRM in their little juice packets um, yeah. or Keurig does it as well, right? They put like a little DRM in the, um, in the little coffee pods to prevent any kind of third parties from, from uh, yeah, yeah. using the machine. I just want, I want to talk a little bit more about this, this logic of enclosure. And this gets at something that we were talking about before we were recording um, about this kind of logic of making something that's public in a way private, you know, enclosing it in, in ways that I think often look a lot like uh, something like feudalism, which I, you know, a lot of people have kind of made this, this, mm -hmm. uh, this comparison, I, I would argue that it's not feudalism, it, it is simply just the like, natural expansion of capitalist logics of rentier capitalism. And thinking about how we look at something that is an obviously, uh, you know, absurd example, like, Keurig or, or a morally reprehensible example like the HP dollar a month, how do we look at something like that and realize that that is not actually the exception, but that's the rule and increasingly is more and more the rule, right? Like, I think the, the example as well with like Medtronic really points to this um, as well, that like we, our life is now dominated in large part through these kinds of rentier relations um, and rentier relations that I think also do play on um, interoperability in really uh, interesting and crucial ways. Like, you know, I, I, I'm thinking here, you know, I'll bring some theory into this as I want to do. Um, one of my favorite passages from a, a great essay by Donna Haraway in 1985, The Cyborg Manifesto, I feel like she really foresaw in a prescient way the Internet of Things and the kind of way in which, you know, interoperability is weaponized as a way to enroll people into these ever-expanding uh, systems of control, these ever-expanding rentier relations. So she, she writes, quote, no objects, spaces, or bodies are sacred in themselves. Any component can be interfaced with any other if the proper standard, the proper code can be constructed for processing signals in a common language. I think today we are seeing those kinds of attempts to make this vision really come true um, as we've talked about these kind of competing corporate alliances, fighting over whose standards will succeed, giving the, its creators the power to shape and dominate this global system of control. On the flip side, you know, I, I think what you've talked about with adversarial interoperability is a way to combat that, to, to hack against that, right? To, to, and as well, your activism against things like DRM as a way to kind of break open those enclosures. I do wonder um, though, this, this goes back to our talking about the like the hacker mindset as well. Built into that is this very like individualistic way of looking at it, right? Like, like we all individually um, have to have the skills or the abilities, um, the will of self-determination and agency uh, to fight against what are ultimately um, really coordinated con and consolidated systems. Uh, you know, I think this is always the question, right? It's like how, you know, V for Vendetta uh, is, a, is, a, is a fantasy, right? That you can have the kind of the one uh, epitome of the hacker really actually blowing up the system. Um, but, so how do, how do we think about adversarial interoperability beyond something that is a kind of highly individualized hacker going against a system that 
the asymmetries there are so obvious we don't have to lay them out right sure so there's there's uh multiple issues within that and i'm trying to figure out how to answer them all so i've got some notes here so uh, first i want to talk about feudalism and point out that what we're actually just describing as as the historians my mention are at pains to to correct me on is um manorialism yeah, yeah. Manorialism, that, right. and that there's a di the difference between manorialism and feudalism is hereditary uh it's whether there's it's whether the aristocracy are the landlords and what is really interesting is that digital manorialism is giving way to digital feudalism with intergenerational wealth transfers. So you're seeing this kind of shrinking down of the elite managerial class, smaller and smaller numbers possessing greater and greater wealth with fewer and fewer impediments to passing them down to their offspring, combined with this like apocalyptic streak in the way that they started to confront climate change where, you know, secretly lurking in the heart of every plute is the belief that like they will retreat to high ground behind robot patrolled fortress walls and breed their children by Harrier jet, right? Like that, you know, this is like clearly like the trajectory they think they're headed for. They went from climate denial to climate nihilism in like 10 seconds flat. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of the, the metastasizing of these systems of control out of devices we think of as digital and into other devices, it's not merely driven by the fact that computers are very flexible and therefore can power, cheaply power lots of things like light bulbs and toasters and whatever. It's also an arbitrage opportunity because traditional market power monopolies are uh, at least hypothetically subject to enforcement. Right? Like in theory, there's still like the Sherman Act was never repealed. The Clayton Act was never repealed. They're still in the books. They're just not enforced because, you know, Robert Bork convinced us that if you read every third word and then like read some of the words backwards and, and you know, like treat it like a QAnon draw <laughs> that you will discover that the actual intent of the drafters of the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act is not what they fucking said when they were having their debates and explained exactly what they meant. It was this other thing that is about forbearance for rich people. But, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, that even so, potentially you can have enforcement actions that will end up harming you and like redounding to the, to the detriment of your shareholders. And then there's this other kind of monopoly, the author's monopoly, right? That's what we used to call intellectual property before 1970s and the World Intellectual Property Organization. And the, you know, the reason for that switch was like going to a government and saying like, my author's monopoly isn't being enforced enough. Can I have more monopoly power, please? Made you sound like a dick. But if you went and you <laughs> said, my, my property is being violated, then like mm -hmm. governments would fall over themselves to help you. And you know, authors, I can tell you from experience, Authors don't like it when you call them monopolists. They're like, yeah, technically speaking, I wrote this book. I'm the only one who has the rights to it. No one else can, can sell it. I have a monopoly. It's one seller. But like, I don't have market power, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't set prices, right? Like that's what we worry about when we worry about monopolies. But here's the thing. If you have a market power monopolist, like Universal Music Group, and then they aggregate a bunch of authors' monopolies, like music that musicians want to sample, then anything that you might do to try to produce music without handing them your author's monopoly and subjecting yourself to the one-sided terms that uh, they uh, stipulate as a condition of doing any sampling uh, will invoke not enforcement against HP for being an unfair monopolist, but enforcement against you for being a copyright infringer. So if you can marry author's monopolies and market monopolies, you get a market monopoly that you don't have to worry about government enforcement against. It's a market monopoly that the government will enforce on your behalf 
-hmm. by enforcing your intellectual property rights. And so this is this like super powerful thing. It's like, it's like the double Irish sandwich or whatever, you know, those tax scams that the big tech companies were doing. It's Mm -hmm. that, but for monopolization, it's like a tax inversion for monopolization where you can, you can get all the benefits of being one kind of monopolist and all the benefits of being the other kind of monopolist and none of the detriments of either. Right. It's also why you see companies that will try and build a a technology that has a copyright and a patent and a trademark and a trade secret, because all of those have exceptions. Right. Copyright is fair use and patent has disclosure and trade secrecy is prior disclosure and whatever. Right. Like there are all these different rules, nominative, nominative defenses and trademark. But if you have all of them, then they overlap so that the thing that copyright prohibits or, or permits rather is prohibited by trademark. And the thing that the trademark prohibits is prevented by the patent. And so all of the zones, all of the safety valves that were built into these rules to prevent them being used to attain monopolies are overlapped so that nothing escapes from your airtight monopoly. And so this is why it's proliferating everywhere. Hmm. And then as to, um, oh, and I wanted to mention apropos that, that I wrote this science fiction novella called Unauthorized Bread about toasters that only toast authorized bread and uh, you know laundry machines that only wash authorized laundry and so on. And it came out of a little thought experiment when I was writing for The Guardian. I wrote a column called If Dishwashers Were iPhones. And mm. it was a letter from a Steve Jobs figure who made you know designer IoT dishwashers explaining to people why they should stop demanding to put grandma's china in their dishwasher. It only took authorized dishes, right? <laughs> dishes that came from the, and like, don't you know that foodborne illnesses have killed more people than all the wars combined? How can we get your dishes clean and guarantee your safety if you can stick that you know, ugly cup your kid made in ceramics class in the dishwasher. We're just doing it for your benefit. Plus, mm-hmm. think of the intellectual property rights of people who make dishes. What if the dish that you're trying to put in there is a pirate dish? How can we know, right? So that's why we're we're doing it to make a, a fair landscape for everyone. And my mentions, like the comments on that Guardian column, you can go back and reread them. And it's just full of people who think that being an Apple customer makes you a member of a disfavored religious minority who are like, mm-hmm. just be like, you know, why are you being mean to us? You're just a hipster who hates on Apple or whatever. So I expanded into this because like, talk about a mind palace. The mind palace of monopoly brand loyalty is is creepy as fuck, right? <laughs> Teslas and, and, and Apple equipment and whatever. I mean, I've been buying ThinkPads for 15 years and I am under no illusions that Lenovo is a good company. I buy them because they're indestructible and they have next day on-site hardware warranties, right? Like I, if, if the company disappeared tomorrow, I would not shed a tear. If they opened a Lenovo store, I would never set foot in it. If they sent me a sticker with a Lenovo logo uh, with every laptop, I would not put it in my car window. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like being in, you know, seriously. Anyway. So, and then finally, I wanted to say this question that you had about whether or not this is an individualistic hacker story, right? Like what, what the literary critics call protagonismo, where every story Mm. is like one protagonist doing stuff. So it is true that technology does allow you to, to gain a force multiplier that that's like a hundred percent true. But that force multiplier is in providing service to other people. So like you make a gateway that bridges Facebook and Diaspora, and like you might be the only person maintaining it. Like there's lots of really important software, unfortunately, that has one or two people maintaining it. And millions of people might depend on it and have their lives improved by it every day. When you look at the like 
initial free software documents, the GPL and the four freedoms that come with it. The last freedom is the freedom to share your code with other people and tell them what you learned by making your code, right? That, 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 and that's like the critical freedom in free software. And free software underwent this, this um, phase change in the early 90s when more business friendly people decided to start calling it open source. And with open source, they just stress the instrumental benefits, right? Like letting people look at your code makes better code because they'll spot the mistakes you've missed, right? They said oh, with, all, with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. And it, that's true, it, it has these instrumental benefits, but like leaving aside those instrumental benefits, even if you never realize them, the ability of people to come and reason together to make code that makes their lives better and suits their needs is critical, right? Like we do live in a world that is mediated by technology and we have for a very long time, right? Like not everyone was capable of doing production scale agriculture, but we didn't say concerns about food are individualistic food because most of us aren't farmers, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, concerns about the sewage system are not individualistic concerns just because most of us don't aren't sewage engineers, right? Like they are, these are universal concerns that for both technical and economic and, you know, individual proclivities reasons, not all of us can directly influence, but all of us can, uh, all of us deserve a say in them, right? Like the, like the idea of a digital world where, where only coders get a say is fucked up. It's, it's what happened to antitrust when we said only economists get a say and there are no political mm -hmm. dimension, right? Mm -hmm. So we need, a, we need a world where where everybody feels entitled to have a say about how we want our technology to work. Not that, not that we should have like idiots saying, well, I want cryptography that works except when the police need it to stop working. Like, you know, this is, this is the official position of the Australian government. You know, you had a prime minister who said um, the laws of mathematics are very commendable, but I think you'll find that in Australia, the law of Australia is the law like that, you know, easily, like I followed stupid things, tech uh, um, politicians about technology for 20 years. That brings home the gold for Australia, retire the fucking competition. No one will ever beat it. It is the dumbest thing anyone has ever said, but, but like, <laughs> somewhere between in the, in Australia, the, the laws of mathematics are commendable, but the law is the law. And like, I don't understand this computer shit. You just give it to me and I'll eat whatever I'm given is a mm -hmm. sweet spot where we all feel like we, we should have a say, we should have the right to become informed. We should have the right to evaluate how it uh, uses our life. At the very least, we should have the right to, to choose someone else's tools. If we mm -hmm. don't like the tools that, that come by default and we, but we should also have the right to try and figure out how to fix our tools or to ask mm -hmm. other people to fix our tools for us, right? Like the, the people in the uh, uh, disability and access movement don't just advocate for people with disabilities to learn how to improve their computers to, to help them, although they advocate for that. But they also advocate for the right to go find people who will make their tools better for them without those people committing felonies because they had right. to circumvent and access control. No, I mean, I, I really, I really like that. I, I think that puts a really nice bow on it because it does link back as well. I mean, it, it makes it even, it makes it clearer for me, to be honest, how something like adversarial interoperability really does plug into something we've talked a lot about on Team K, which is a need to, um, as we frame it, democratize innovation, right? I, I think that there is, there is a kind of mindset uh, that has come out of the the, the hacker mentality that does see them as uh, 
uh, as an elite group who holds this like kind of sacred knowledge, right? And so in a way, they just want to, um, you know, usurp the the current lords and become the kind of like technocratic lords themselves, right? And I, and I think that 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 does unfortunately really does put a stain on something that ought to be seen as I think you just framed it really well in terms of a democratization movement, right? Like you're exactly right. Like, like our lives are mediated through technology. I mean, this is a key part of the, the kind of theory of technopolitics that motivates uh, TMK, which is that technology is a form of legislation. Um, and like a form of legislation, we ought to have uh, the ability to change it, uh, to be partic- to participate in it, to uh, really direct the the kind of society it creates and the kind of lives that we lead around it and structured by it. And I think, um, as our conversation has really laid out, um, the the kind of current model of doing technology and the way that uh, these technology companies latch on to something like interoperability. This gets back to a point that Ed made as well, like in the antitrust hearings, right? They, they um, big tech is trying to say interoperability is actually a really good uh, alternative to breaking us up, right? Like yeah. don't, don't break us up, just make right. us cooperate with each other. Many um, we- programmer who put a logical land where they want, or a logical or where they needed a logical land. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Break it up and make it interoperable. Totally. Yeah. Um, In fact, you know, if it comes down to it, lots of like a standardized way of doing interoperability and a facility with it and a kind of widespread acceptance of the idea of like a a federation and so on is a great precursor to breakups because it it gives, first of all, it allows us to imagine how those services might work. If someone says, well, how will Facebook work if you break it up? We'll say, oh, well, you know how Facebook now, because of mandated interoperability, has hundreds of diaspora satellites that talk to it. It would just become some of those diaspora satellites, right? It would just, just mm-hmm. be it would just be decomposed into those. So that gives us some, some advantage. And also, you know, it neutralizes the argument we hear out of Facebook now, which is like the worst argument I've ever heard anyone make against breakups. Facebook is like, we totally lied when we bought WhatsApp and Instagram and promised we wouldn't merge their backends. But it was really expensive to combine those backends and teasing them apart would be even more expensive. So we should be allowed to, to like maintain these services that we merged under false pretenses and tech. That's like, that is fucking crazy. Like I robbed the bank, but I, but the house that I built with the bank money is so nice. <laughs> give the money back because then I wouldn't have my nice house. Like, right. Bananas. I legally, you, you legally really... built the house. And if you take me out of it, that would be illegal. And I mean, it, it happened a few years ago anyway. Yeah. So like, can't I just stay here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah just grandfather be... this shit in. Like, <laughs> right. I know I wasn't supposed to like store plutonium in my backyard, but I'm like super, I'm enjoying it. My neighbors don't mind. It's been a long time. What new harms will come of it? You know? <laughs> also, it could be really dangerous to dig up that plutonium now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. We just you have leave any it idea there? how complicated it is to dig up plutonium? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly right. It, that, that also links directly to uh, uh, an analogy I really like from Luke Stark, who's argued that facial recognition should be seen as yeah. as plutonium, right? I, I mean, I, I, I think that this... argument about data in like 2008, that it's like that 
data atomized data is like unrefined uranium which is you know mm -hmm. you, you can buy it on amazon for science fair experiments you can eat it it's like not a big deal merged data is like plutonium where mm -hmm. there's no amount of it that's so small that it won't kill you and we have no idea how to get rid of it Mm -hmm. I mean that 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 was great. <laughs> that was great. I mean, we could go on forever. We didn't even get to uh, talking about. Uh, is it your latest book, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism? Yeah, um, yeah. I'd love to talk about that. I know you guys are skeptical about Zuboff. I I mean, I think you you kind of put your finger on it, which is that like it's enabled by a bunch of technologists who will settle for being evil geniuses so long as they get to stay geniuses. And so mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, no, we do. We did build that mind control ray. I really regret it now. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I only wanted to sell your nephew fidget spinners. I didn't know Robert Mercer would steal it and make your uncle a QAnon racist. You know, <laughs> uh, like it's it's crazy. Uh, and the evidence is so thin. And reading Zuboff's book, I was struck by like how much the evidence was either a marketing claim from a company that really wanted you to think that they had a mind control ray or worse, a patent application, which I have to tell you is like the world's shittiest form of fiction, right? I've seen like, patent applications for fusion reactors, you yeah, know, for yeah, yeah, anti-gravitation yeah, like devices. Perpetual motion machines, like zero point energy. It's all in the USPTO. And, you know, and the standard format of the patent application is like, this is all methods for doing all things with everything. This is also some methods for some things. And then you get narrower and narrower and then you get to like, I'm patenting cutting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from corner to corner instead of down the middle. But what you're hoping is that the patent examiner like just draws a line a couple of layers up from that narrowing down to the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and inadvertently gives you a patent on sandwiches, right? Mm -hmm. And so like mm -hmm. all patents start with these very broad dumbass claims. Like I think the USPTO should bill patent applicants by the hour like I think that would actually be like an incredibly use or the word maybe, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, like if you can't express your, your invention with sufficient crispness that um, it fits into like a hundred words, maybe you shouldn't have it. Event Health is America's largest invention company with sales offices in over 50 cities nationwide. Call Event Health today. been a, a a really fantastic conversation with Corey uh I mean to the point where Corey is actually going to stick around um and talk with us more in the Patreon episode because we've just opened up a whole other can of worms talking about how to destroy surveillance capitalism and the the way that uh marketing hype has completely rotted the brains of so many critics um not to mention the boosters of these technologies so uh, I want to thank Corey, who just ran away to get a drink. So I will do his plugs for him. Uh, you can find Corey on Twitter at Dr. O. Uh, you can read and should read Corey's book, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, as well as uh, all of the other amazing uh, fiction and nonfiction works that Corey has been doing. I'm doing your plugs for you right now, Corey. I don't know if you want to tell people um, where they should find you really quickly, find you sure. and your work. Yeah, I have, um, I have a, a sort of multi-format blog at pluralistic.net. It's also available as a Twitter feed and a Mastodon feed and a, a Tumblr feed uh, and a newsletter. There's no surveillance. There's no ads. There's no cost. There's no begs. Uh, it's just a, it's just like an, an influence op. 
So I, go. I, I really like reading pluralistic.net. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you were, you were one of the originators of the blog, uh, the blog art form. And, uh, Aww. I think pluralistic is a really great place to see that in action. Yeah. So, I'm trying to get back to my roots there. And then I, I write books. I've got like more than 20 of them, picture books for little kids and, uh, middle grades, readers, young adult novels, adult books, uh, books for adults, rather not adult books, not yet. Uh, nonfiction of various kinds. Uh, and if you go to craphound.com, you can see them all. And I also have arrangements with my publishers, mostly I'm published by Macmillan, but they let me sell my own eBooks and they're also without, uh, DRM. So if you buy them for me, I get the 30% that Jeff Bezos would get if you bought them in the Kobo mm. store. And I send the other 70% to my publisher and then they give me my 25% royalty back. So I get about twice as much money if you do that, but you can buy them anywhere. That's good. Fantastic. So um, thanks everyone for listening. Join us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for our premium episode. Um, and we're going to dive right back. In. We're going to dive into that right now. So we will see y'all later in the week. Later.
kills. <laughs>